we are at the end of July. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. It is Monday, July the 26th. By the time most of you listen, it will be Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. Another edition of the Walkway to Fight Club. I'm Steven Mielhausen from DAZN. Whew, what a, a nice, beautiful, low-key combat sports weekend. Because it is going to get nuts, ladies and gentlemen. So let's enjoy this little calm before the you-know-what hits the fan. So, but a nice low-key weekend. Want to thank everyone that's been listening. My goodness, we've already passed the number of downloads from last week. And then the week before that. So, man, to everyone, thank you so much. Means a lot, trust me. My goodness. This is just a little podcast that I'm... But we're getting there. We're taking baby steps. So it means a lot. It's greatly appreciated. You guys are just rocking. Really, really are. It just means a lot. Greatly appreciated. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. It's simple. Just type in Walkway to Fight Club. Hit that subscribe button. Leave a kind and nice review. And also rate the podcast five stars. That always means a lot. It's always appreciated. Big thank you last week to Jake Paul. That was awesome. Big thank you to Biggie because that was really cool. And a big thank you to TJ Delashaw and Corey Sanhagen. I was thinking, you know what? How are we going to begin this week? It's simple. And I'll tell you that in a moment. But let's go to the weekend really quickly. I just want to give a quick recap. Big win for Joe Joyce over Carlos Tackham. Sixth round TKO. Not the world's biggest fan of that stoppage. I thought Tackham was actually winning the fight. I think I had Joy Joyce. I had it 4-2 tack. I had 3-2 Tackham going into the sixth. So, I wasn't overly impressed with Joe Joyce. He got the job done at the end of the day because he does apply constant pressure. He's got great cardio. But is that going to get him through an Oleksandr Usyk, an Anthony Joshua, a Tyson Fury, a Deontay Wilder? I don't know. And my answer to that is probably no. Maybe he would beat Usyk, but I just think the footwork and the precision striking I think would be too much for Joe Joyce. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Joe Joyce, but he's 35. And this is kind of weird to think you get to that age, that stage of the game. It's kind of hard to teach a dog new tricks, as they say. So I'm not overly keen. Yeah, you got an undefeated challenger. Okay, I get that. Cool. I don't know. I'm not really sold on the Joe Joyce experiment. Go to back to Friday night. What I covered for DAZN. Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship, and I'll say this. I will give BKFC a ton of credit. They market very well. They market to their audience, and they know, and they take different people, and they expand that base. I don't have numbers yet of what it did, because it was on Fight TV throughout the world and on their app. So I don't know what how many people viewed it. I don't know how many people watched. 
trying to get some numbers to see if I can get like some sort of rough estimate. I should be able to get viewing numbers tomorrow. So we'll see. Hopefully I'll have something for you guys then. But I thought an entertaining show. If I like knockouts. I like just people. <laughs> it is bad of me to say maybe not the best example for children. It's like people punching each other in the face. It's pretty cool. So, but no, big credit to those guys. A lot of people were there. A lot of notable names. And Tyron Woodley was facing Jake Paul on August 29th. You had some WWE flavor. You had Karrion Cross. You had Scarlett. Some AEW. Adam Cole. You had some AEW representatives. You had Britt Baker. Dr. Britt Baker, DMD. You had the head of AEW, Tony Khan, and free agent, Braun Strowman. You fill in the gaps, I'll tell you how they went. <laughs> Trust me. But a great event, headlined by Paige Van Sant, Rachel Ostovich. Great win for Rachel Ostovich. She avenges her loss to Paige about two and a half years ago in the UFC, a unanimous decision. Thought. Paige Van Zandt acted like a petulant child after the fact, storming off like the world owed or something. She lost. She clearly lost. The fact she thought, and it occurred to me watching the fifth round, she thought she was either, she thought she was winning. Sorry about that, guys. She thought she was winning. She wasn't close to winning. She was losing. Losing handedly. That was it was quite interesting to get that perspective from Paige Van Sant and storming off like the way she did. But a great win for Rachel Ostovich. Really, really impressed by her. Striking was very, very good. But Paige Van Sant, she rudimentary. No head movement, jab. And Ostovich just timed the jab with an overhand right and kept blasting her. That was the name of the game right there. She got some bad advice. I'm not saying she can't do this, but her game plan and her strategy wasn't, I don't think, was very good. But it'd be interesting to see what they do with her because she's 0-2. Her love, people still want to see her fight. I don't know why. We covered it because it's going to get viewers. People are going to go to the website. You know, I don't get it, but and I made that call. <laughs> so, but we'll see. But then Saturday night, a good. I thought I didn't watch all of the UFC. I just watched the main event. Corey Sanhagen, TJ Dillashaw, a great, great win for TJ Dillashaw. I hate Sanhagen winning, but it was it wasn't a stingery. It was a highway robbery. It wasn't even a robbery. It just depends on how one views a fight. I don't begrudge anyone that scored it for Dillashaw. You know, I hit rounds two, four, five for Sanhagen. Rounds one and three for TJ Dillashaw. But everyone views a fight differently, and that's okay. That's what's the cool thing about combat sports. Not everyone has to have the same thought process. So I thought that was pretty cool. A cool fight. Could have went either way. I don't think either guy loses. I don't think Sanhagen loses a whole lot. Especially with a tough, gritty fight like that. That fight was was really good, back and forth action. You can't fault either guy. Great win, though. At the end of the day, Dillashaw got it done, and 
he wants next. He wants the winner of Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan, which is expected to take place from what I'm told October 30th out in Abu Dhabi. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. And maybe the, by March, April, I just don't think TJ Dillashaw is going to wait that long. And I don't really don't blame him. He should be active at this point. So a name he told me on when we listen, listen to last week's podcast, which is in the archives, he thought Rob Font was a good fight. So I'm intrigued to hear, intrigued to see what happens next with TJ Dillashaw. But our guest today is Eric Bischoff, former head of WCW, on-screen character for WWE, was a part of TNA, went back to WWE for a cup of coffee, has an awesome podcast, 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson. That podcast is awesome. I talked to Eric... Actually, it was almost three weeks ago. I wanted to save this for when the opportunities are. It's evergreen content, so it can be discussed whenever. But I talked to Eric on the 25-year anniversary of the NWO, which happened at Bash at the Beach 96, and Hulk Hogan made that dastardly heel turn, brother. What you gonna do? I didn't get my Hulk Hogan in there. But I talked to Eric about everything surrounding Hall and Nash signing, and then really honed in from when Scott Hall debuted to the power bomb at the bash at the, at the Great American Bash by Kevin Nash until Hogan. Turned. We talked about all of that. Was there a plan C beyond Hulk Hogan and Sting? I thought his answer to that, oh my, it was so intriguing. Was Mabel really ever considered? All joking aside, with Dave Meltzer and a whole bunch, a whole lot more. I just thought it was so insightful. A great chat. Enough of me. Here is Eric Bischoff. I know what July 7th means to me, but today is definitely a special day. It is the 25-year anniversary of when the New World Order formed at the Bash and the Beach. And this gentleman right here, the creator of the New World Order, the one and only Eric Bischoff. And when you think of when you were when you knew this day was coming, Eric what did it mean to you then when you were thinking about it? And now that the day is here, what does it mean now? I forgot all about it till this morning when I woke up and my Twitter feed was, Oh, you're such a liar. <laughs> Eric, I've talked to you enough. I don't believe you. No, it's actually true. I, but, but there's a reason for it. You know, um, Conrad Thompson and I have been covering, you know, the, the NWO and the 25th anniversary of the NWO for about three weeks on our podcast covering each show, you know, covering the shows yeah. leading into it. And the, now we're up to the shows coming out of it and the reaction to it and things. So I feel like I've been talking about, you know, the NWL and the 25th anniversary of it for so long now that the day of, of the anniversary, I actually forgot it was really happening until I got this morning. I picked up my phone and went, oh my gosh, what is all this? And I, oh, okay, well, it's technically today's the 25th anniversary, so. Uh, I, I went to the, you know, I got up about 5.30 this morning, went to the refrigerator, had a beer, and no, I didn't. Oh, I was going to say, man, that would have been no, It's a good story, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I guess just for nerds like me, I've been, I was focusing on wanting to talk to you because I know we've talked a lot in the past, and this is really a topic me and you had never discussed, but I guess it's just nerds like me, Eric, are really consumed with a day like this. Well, no, clearly um, a lot of people 
uh, are, I mean, like I said, other than when I was inducted into the WWE, WWE Hall of Fame and obviously the social um, media that happened as a result of that, I don't think my social media accounts have been this um, jammed up since then. So it means a lot to a lot of people. And I think people recognize that it was kind of like a really cool point in history where a lot of things changed and a lot of things changed for the better. And some of those changes we're still seeing today, you know, as a result of what we did 25 years ago. And, you know, I was talking about, you know, to my wife this morning when I realized, you know, what day it was. And she, she actually pointed out to me, and she's not like a hardcore wrestling fan or anything like that. But she, she said, Eric, you know, if you think about it from a creative perspective only, it is probably the most significant thing that's happened in the wrestling business in the last, I don't know, 25, 50 years. Now, arguably, and I would defend, you know, the WWE and say, well, wait a minute. You know, I kind of think Vince McMahon taking wrestling national and kind of breaking the territory paradigm and you know, all of the things that happened as a result of that, getting WWF on NBC and things like that. All of those were in their ways just as big, if not bigger, but those were strategic changes. They weren't creative changes. It wasn't a storyline or a character. It was a strategic change. So I, I do think creatively, perhaps, you know, the, the NWO and all the things that, that happened as a result of it were probably one of the most important things that's happened in this industry in our lifetimes. Did you, do you mute your social media today? Do you, turn off those notifications today is it one of those things i know when i break a big story or i write a big story and someone's retweeting it i know i turn mine off do you do that eric or do you just look and you're like talking about me today <laughs> no you know when i when i do look at so you know look i use social media i mean it's a tool for me it's not yep. an obsession i don't you know i don't get riled up over things that i read or get you know, over, overjoyed with something, if it's something positive, I just, you know, I look at it and I, I kind of watch patterns and I watch the type of things that people react to. I'd say the most fun thing I had, the most fun thing I did after I woke up and I realized I was sitting down this morning early and had my first cup or two of coffee. And I want, you know what, I'm just going to tweet, not a response to anybody. I'm just going to tweet your welcome <laughs> and see how many responses I'll get. And I, while I was waiting to do the show with you, I went out, I wonder what it's up to today. It's been a couple hours now, you know, it's over, you know, 180,000 impressions and 2000 likes. And I don't know how many retweets and stuff. And all two words, no tag, no emoji, no picture, two words. You're welcome. And it's probably one of the most successful posts I've had in months. So I, I get a kick out of it, but I'm not obsessed with it at all. I don't have to turn it on or off. You know, when I'm, when I'm busy working and doing other things, I just turn my phone off and focus on what I'm doing. And I check in with it later on in the day. How many cups of coffee do you have a day? So I'm usually oh, about three or four. Dude, the only reason I'm afraid to answer that question is because somebody associated with my health insurance coverage may be listening <laughs> and I don't want my rates to go up. <laughs> I drink, a, you know, I drink a fair amount of coffee, but it's all organic coffee. I'll mind you. There's no chemicals in it, all that kind of healthy stuff. 
But the real uh, key is a specific type of tea that I drink um, that really, really helps me focus. It gives me a lot of great energy. So no, I'm jealous. Not of- the, the coffee I drink, out of, the coffee is just a bad habit. But the oh, tea yeah. is magic. I blame my wife for the coffee. You do what? I, I never drink coffee till I met my wife. Oh, well, you should never. be grateful to her. <laughs> I am for that, but not since then, Eric. All I do, it's like three, four. I just finished my last cup of coffee. I'm in, we're 4.55 Chicago time. I think I had my last cup of coffee about two hours ago. Yeah, I usually cut myself off around noon because then I then I can't sleep. And that's that's a down a downward spiral when I don't get <laughs> sleep. So I definitely hear you. And, you know, I look at, I've watched a listen to all the podcasts that you guys have done you and Connor done leading up to today and watch I watched the show last night again just to kind of refresh my memory of everything that happened on the entire show and thinking about in the grand scheme of things to me it's always felt like Hulk gets a lot of the credit Scott gets a lot of the credit Kevin gets a lot of the credit and rightfully so but if you don't go to Japan and see what's going on in Japan and be like let's try that here I'm feel pretty certain this conversation isn't happening. Maybe we're talking about something different, but we're not talking about this. You feel like you, that you don't get the rightful credit that in all actuality you do deserve. Mm, you know, I don't think about it that way. You know, every once in a while when I do an interview and it, like you just mentioned that, you know, when you said not being critical or anything, but when you said, well, if you hadn't gone to Japan and see what they were doing over there, you know, and, and that's true. That statement is a factual, you know, it's a factual observation. Had I not gone over to Japan as often yeah. as I did, had I not been studying the differences between the way Japanese professional wrestling was presented and the way, and, and contrast that to way, the way American professional wrestling was being presented, it's quite possible the NWO idea might not ever have occurred to me. You know, but there's this narrative, and I don't know where it started. I, I suspect I know I know where, but I'm not sure. Um, there's I'm not going to get you upset today. No, I, I, I don't really care. But there's there's this narrative that's out there that, you know, I went over to Japan and watched an invasion angle play out in UFWI. I've never been to a UFWI event. I've only been to New Japan events. Uh, in all the years I've been to Japan, other than some K1 um, kickboxing events, so that one of them I hosted, um, but um, or did play-by-play on, I should say. Um, so the idea for the NWO was a result of me seeing how wrestling was presented as a very real sport. There was nothing cartoony. There was nothing gimmicky not only was wrestling presented that way by the producers and the promoters, in my case, New Japan Pro Wrestling, but it was covered by the media as a very legitimate sport. I'd go over for the big, you know, New Year's Eve show, the Tokyo Dome. There'd be 60 or 80,000 people, 70, 80,000 people in the Tokyo Dome who had all paid an average ticket price of about 100 to $150 American, you know, to be in the building. And they were all wearing suits and ties, the men and the women were all dressed up and it looked more like, you know, a sporting event of what boxing used to be like back in the day. Um, and, and it was a reality and the legitimacy 
that that I went, okay, that's what's working here in Japan. Because meanwhile, back in the States, it was all very cartoony, gimmicky, silly, kitty wrestling. And I mean, WCW was doing it as well as WWE. So I went, okay, I got to find a way to bring that reality that I see over in Japan into the United States. That was the impetus of the catalyst, I should say of the uh, NWO idea. It wasn't going, oh, here's an invasion wrestling angle that's working over there, I'm gonna do it here. You know, I know that's a narrative that it's not the case, but had I not been over in Japan, I wouldn't have felt the need to bring, to, to contrast what was really going on in the States with what I felt needed to be done. Let me ask you a question that I don't think you've really answered, at least the best of my knowledge, maybe you have, and I just haven't seen it. Same, where would you, where do, I'll refer, I'll go back. Where do you, where was WCW in your mind before you thought about creating the NWO? Where do you think the company was at before you had that idea? Well, we were, we were making good progress. You know, I, I when I came to WCW in 91, the company was a dismal, distant number two, it could have just as easily been number 222 in comparison to the WWE at that time. Uh, it was losing money hand over fist. It was dysfunctional in many respects, but, you know, it was owned by Turner Broadcasting and everybody was getting paid and it was still compared to where I came from, you know, I left the AWA. Uh, for me, it was still a great gig even though I knew it, it was what it was and it was basically dysfunctional and not very successful. Um, but, and I'm not saying this was all because of me, but you know, when I took over the company essentially in 94, um, I started turning things around and WCW went from being kind of the redheaded stepchild that nobody really wanted to show up to a family dinner um, and turn broadcasting to becoming a fairly successful part of, of Turner Broadcasting. Not completely successful, but by 1995, I had turned that thing around financially. We went from being, not 1995, but I think 96 was the first year we made a dollar of profit. In the history of WCW, since Ted Turner started it, no one had able, ever been able to find a way to make it profitable. And because of the success that we were having pre-NWO, I was given more and more latitude. I was given bigger budgets. I was given the opportunity to do Monday Nitro on primetime on TNT because of the fact that we had started turning the company around really in 93 and 94. So the company was well on its way to becoming healthy and, and viable. It's just that the NWO, when that happened, kind of took it, you know, it was a hockey stick. It wasn't a gradual improvement it was a hockey stick in the, in the sense of going straight up yeah uh, it just changed everything and what made it so fun is it i mean it, was, it wasn't overnight but it felt that way it's like whoa one minute you know we're lucky to put three thousand people in the arena and the next minute we're putting thirty thousand people in the arena kind of cool <laughs> <laughs> you know you like you said there it kind of just went and do you ever I know you're not one to, like you said, you're not one to go, yay, look at me, but do you have to pat yourself on the back there? Because you're like, 
man, this is pretty cool. The fact that we went from, like you said, drawing 3,000 people, the Bash at the Beach show, you had to turn people away. You unfortunately, and you know, and the reason you gave on the podcast, I thought was the right one of why you had the comps for mm-hmm. the advertisers and the radio shows and the media and stuff of that nature. But you're going from 3,000 to sold out arenas to starting at 6,800 or whatever the number was to uh, 30,000 people packing stadiums. Did you ever pet? Did you ever take that seat back and just kind of soak it in a little bit, or was it just everything was going so quick? You really didn't have time to grasp everything of what was going on. No, it's the latter. You know, everything was happening so fast that you really don't have time to soak it all in. And and the truth is I screwed up enough stuff that it kept me balanced. Oh, for for every one really good thing you do, there's like three or four little things that you, oh gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. So I, I, it wasn't until afterwards, I think really until the last couple of years, probably because of doing the podcast that I've really even reflected back on my career. You know, I know I've done interviews in the past, even before the podcast and things like that. And I've had strong opinions about the business and still do. Um, but I never, you know, I just never took the time to pat myself on the back for it. I'll, I will, you know, in, a, in the course of a conversation or, you know, an interview like this, I'll recognize, you know, it's a pretty cool stuff that no one else had ever done. I've done it's a pretty cool stuff that no one else had ever done. That is the reason we're watching a lot of what we're watching today is because of what we did and what we broke ground with in, in 1995 with Nitro, certainly 1996 with the NWL. So I, I'm, I'm aware of it, but, you know, it's, like I said, I screwed up enough other stuff that it keeps me balanced. Conrad keeps me balanced is why. He, he does, I noticed me. that. Yeah. You know, you look at, I was, I rewatched the pay-per-view last night in this morning and I just thought the whole show around, it was one of the WCW at that time. It, you'd come off a great bash. You take the power bomb. And I have to ask this before we go further, that power bomb looked like it hurt the way Kevin threw it, the way Kevin tossed it. I'm like, either you sold it really, really well, or, or Kevin just overshot his, overshot his shot there. Does that look like it hurt bad? No, it didn't hurt at all, actually. Um, and, you know, selling is easy on a bump like that. You just pretend you're dead. You don't, you don't have to be a Shakespearean actor, you know, to do a good job selling something like that. Just, you know, kind of roll around like you're in a little bit of pain. Don't overact and just play dead till they pick you up and take you away. And that's exactly what they did. They came and they picked me up and they took me backstage and I got up and high-fived everybody and jumped in my car and went to the hotel. (laughs) That's not a bad way to celebrate there. You know, it felt like that moment there. Yeah, we had Scott came in, Kevin came in. But see, look, that's to me the moment where everything took off. I hadn't ordered it. I couldn't tell you the last time I had ordered a WCW pay-per-view before the Great American Bash. And just to seeing that, knowing they were going to be there and then seeing what happened. To me, that felt like that was that was really the key moment to me because that set everything in motion for what we were about to see. It it was a good precursor because you know attacking and again at that time, although some people knew I was the president of the company, I think I was president at that time or whatever I was. I don't. Know. Um, but clearly, I was running for all intents and purposes running the company. People knew that, but I wasn't wearing that on my sleeve. I was really still the announcer more than anything. And for 
I, I don't know, maybe it had happened. I'm sure it happened before, but I, I can't remember it or not aware of it if it did, but kind of broke the unwritten rule, right? You never lay a hand on the announcer. You know, when I came up in the industry working with Vern Gagne, that was like, you know, written in blood. No matter what the announcer says to you, now the announcer has, you know, for a long time, it was Gene Okerlund in the AWA, and then it was Roger Kent and um, others. But, you know, the unwritten rule was, you know, never touch the announcer. Well, I thought, well, that's a good rule to break. If we're going to start breaking paradigms, let's start with that one, because it'll yeah. definitely get people's attention. And that was the underlying I think psychology behind everything on Nitro first and certainly within NWO, NWO is just take whatever the rules are for wrestling. Now I'm talking about 10 counts and count outs and, you know, things like that. But, you know, the, the general, you know, framework for what everybody has accepted is, you know, the way wrestling should be. And let's take a torch to that and see what happens. And that was the first, that was the first big thing that we did. There were others too. I mean, Scott Hall coming down through the crowd. That was well, awesome. you've seen that before? Probably not. Do some research. You think maybe you could find it, but I don't think so. You know, and there was just so many things like that that we did. But that was that was a big one. You know, you look at the guys you went with. Could it have only been? And I know it's easy to say it now, but back at that time, was it? Did it have to be Scott and Kevin, and then eventually Hulk or? Or could it have been anybody else? No, I, I don't think, you know, the same story at the same time with a different cast probably would not have worked. You know, and Conrad and I talk about this a lot on the podcast. You know, so much of success is timing. You know, people that are really successful don't like to admit that because it makes them feel less smart or look less smart. Um, talented but you know you have to be smart you have to be talented to come up with anything that works yeah. really really big what in whatever business you're in but you also have to have pretty good timing too i've seen a lot of really good ideas that didn't succeed because the timing they were either premature that those ideas were ahead of their time or in some cases they well, would have worked better last year um but in, in the case of the nwo i think the cast gets a big chunk of that credit and the timing really gets a big chunk of that credit. And I think to try to have that same story happening at the same time with a different cast probably would not have worked. You know, I was listening to the podcast that you guys, when you did the bash at the beach episode. And one of the things I found very intriguing was the fact that, you know, you were talking about Hulk and when he was going to turn and, he felt like even back in 94 that he started hearing the booze just because, you know, he was new and, you know, he came from up North and he was starting to feel it not too much into his run. Mm -hmm. Did that surprise you? Because when you said that, that surprised the heck out of me. I, I'm not sure I got the question. That he was hearing the jeers and the boos and oh, he, no, said, he, that, had I mean, said, he had said that to you and you really were and you're like, oh, I, I don't know. And I know I wasn't really feeling it at that time. And I was watching a lot of the WCW pay-per-views and did that come as a surprise to you that he was feeling, I'd say not accepted back even at that time? No, I mean, look, 
we we kind of knew that you know Hulk Hogan, you know, as a part of WWE or WWF at that time, coming into the WCW quote unquote territory. Because keep in mind, WCW, you know, when Ted launched it, he essentially bought the assets out of Jim Crockett Promotions and he created WCW. It was a startup. Yeah. And I think it started in 1989. So it was only a five-year-old company when Hulk came in or six-year-old company when, by the time Hulk came in and six years in the professional wrestling is still, you know, you're still a baby as yeah. a, as a new company. So you're still a startup, but WCW was very much a remnant of the Southeastern territories. It still had a, NWA feel to it, yeah. right? It still had a Jim Crockett promotions feel to it. The audience that was watching WCW on, on TBS or on Turner of any sorts or in syndication was the same audience that grew up on Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA and Georgia Championship Wrestling and Florida Championship Wrestling and things like that. So for, for Hulk Hogan, who was the quote unquote enemy or coming from the enemy you know, territory up north, they were still referred to. I remember when I got to WCW, I said, yeah, those guys up north. I'm going up north where? <laughs> okay. Up north. Oh, you mean, you know, WWE. But they, they very much still had that. Uh, he's not one of us vibes to it. And when Hulk first came in, you know, we got, he got the reaction you would expect to be good. It was very positive. But after a period of weeks and then months and the longer that time went on, you'd get about a 60, 40, 70, 30 reaction to him. And, you know, we both were seeing it yeah. and watching it. And I think in Hulk's case, he tried to, I don't want to say ignore it, but he tried not to let it get to him as yeah. he should, but it became more and more obvious. I think as time went on that it was time to, uh, to make a change. You had told me in the past that when we've briefly talked about this, that the backup plan had, was stink but when did you know that you were going to have that hulk was going to be a consideration was it always i want to go with hulk and then if it doesn't happen it'll be sting or how did that no, process play it, out to it, determine who the third guy was going to be no it was really the opposite of that uh okay. i had i had a conversation with hulk about six months prior to Towards the end of 1995, okay, maybe in November, October, November, I actually flew down. He was he lived in Florida at the time, still does, and I had my own plane at the time. I used to make you know if I could think of an excuse to fly my plane, especially on business, so Turner was paying for it. Nice, uh, I would do it in a heartbeat. So I, you know, I I, I, I recognized that we needed to do something different with Hulk. So I jumped in my plane, flew down and visited him one weekday afternoon. And uh, I, I sat down, we had a beer. It was a very friendly meeting. And I said, Hulk, you know, it's just not going the way I think you want it to go. It's not certainly not going the way we were hoping it would go. Um, have you ever considered, you know, turning heel? And it, it was a much more detailed conversation, Yeah, but I'm paraphrasing the hell out of it. But um, he, he sat back and he gave me one of these and you know, here's exactly what he did. He went, hmm. looked at his watch, 
said, brother, I appreciate you coming down, but unless you walk a mile in my red and yellow boots, you're never really going to understand. And I got to go pick up my kids at school. So thanks very much for coming down. You can take that beer with you. <laughs> <laughs> at least you thought you have the beer. Yeah. Wow. That's great. You know, and I had to spend the night because I had had a couple of beers and I wasn't going to jump on a plane that way. So I went back to my hotel, spent the night in Tampa and flew back to Atlanta. And then we had, I think we used Hulk in 95 for his last appearance. Maybe we used him one time after that. But Hulk was only doing um, four pay-per-view, four pay-per-views a year at that time. So Hulk was in between pay-per-views. When Scott Hall came down through the crowd and showed up and Kevin Nash showed up, Hulk was off in California doing a movie. He was locked on location, he was locked on a set. And I had already talk to sting sting was going to be the third guy i went to sting first i didn't even go to hulk because he'd already told me he didn't want to turn heel so why would i go to hulk and say hey did you change your mind you know and, <laughs> and, and had i known how big the nwo was going to be i could certainly have probably put on my salesman shoes and gotten the job done but he'd already told me he wasn't interested in turning heel so the idea of going to hulk was not even was the furthest thing from my mind yeah so i went to sting because sting could have and would have worked not as well as Hulk, in my opinion, but it still could have worked. And it was going to be Hulk until I got a call from Hulk right after uh, Kevin Nass showed up. Now, the NWO story was already on its way. Sting was already going to be the third man. Yeah. The train had left the station. And I got a phone call, and Hulk said, hey, can you come out to California? Because he was locked on the set. He couldn't leave. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll come out. And I flew out to California, got up to his uh, some remote mountaintop location somewhere in the middle of California. It took me hours to get there by car. Got to his trailer about 11 o'clock at night after flying there all day from Atlanta. And uh, we sat down and he said, who's the third man going to be? I said, I didn't want to tell him because I hadn't told anybody at that point. Sting knew, of course. Yeah. My wife knew, but. Other than that, not many people knew. And uh, <clears throat> I said, well, who do you want it to be? Who do you think it should be? Same Good old. Question. Hmm. <laughs> Dang. You're, lo you're looking at him, brother. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. <laughs> Hulkster wants to turn heel. Good idea, Hulk. <laughs> there you go. Glad you thought of it. <laughs> let, him think, let him think that, though. Well, in all fairness, you know, looking back, Hulk's a very deliberate person. He's a very smart guy. He's got a great instinct um, for a lot of things. But, you know, when I first went to Hulk about turning heel, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a story. Yeah. I didn't come to him and say, Hulk, I got this really good idea of how you could turn heel. And I think if I would have come to him with an idea or a plan, to at yeah. least make it look like it had been thought through, we would have had probably a different conversation. I'm not sure he would have turned heel or not, but he, we definitely would have had a different conversation. But just to go in and say, yeah, this shit's not working. How about we flip a switch? I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know how it's going to work, but hey, let's try that. You know, that would have been a really stupid move on his part. So yeah. the fact that he didn't want to do it, I think was, more of a result of me not doing my homework and having a plan before I asked him, number one. And, you know, number two, when he saw that opportunity and he saw the momentum 
at the NWL was beginning to, to create, he, he wanted to be a part of that. We talk about beer earlier with you and Hulk. Who can drink more beer? You or Hulk Hogan. In one sitting. One evening, I'll put it. That's a, that's a tough one. No, it's it, not anymore because I, I really I joke about drinking, you know, kind of like, you know, Ron White, you know, standing there with his glass of <laughs> apple juice that, that, he, yeah. that he pretends is scotch, you know. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's a fun joke, and I throw it in there to get a chuckle every now and then, but uh, I don't really drink that much anymore. I did over the 4th of July weekend. Oh, my God. I hear But you. in the day when we were both kind of rocking it pretty hard and traveling a lot together chartering our own planes and things like that. Um, I'd say I could probably drink more beer, but he could drink more wine. You a wine guy? No, I'm not a wine guy, which is why he could drink more wine. <laughs> he, is, he is a wine guy. And, you know, back then in the 90s, I would drink wine. You know, it's just, um, but it didn't, just didn't work for me. Um, I was just, a, and you know, I just drink Coors Lights. You know, I drink the weakest. Okay you know, piss water beer that they make, but it does the job for me. And, and I can drink copious amounts of it and not feel too bad. So Coors Light, Eric Bischoff and Coors Light. Okay. I'm going to remember that one, Eric. I'm going to remember that one, but you know, you, as we, we move forward and how did Sting take that news? Mm. Was, was it like a sense of relief to Sting? Cause he didn't have to turn because he was quote unquote, the franchise of WCW. What was his reaction to when you like, we're going to go, the plane is now to go with Hulk? You know, that's a really good question. And one that I would like to ask Sting myself. You know, I, I know how he reacted to me. Super pro professional, understood, saw why having Hulk Hogan turn heel would be the best idea. Yeah. I think, you know, when I first presented the idea to him, he was, you know, because Sting is, uh, Steve Borden, very good businessman like Hulk, but he's much more thoughtful and analytical. Hulk is more instinct or was probably still is. He's more about how the, how something feels when he hears it. Steve is much more, he's a deep thinker. Okay. And sometimes he over, or he used to overthink a little bit. And when he, when Sting would start overthinking, he'd get a little bit, sketchy on an idea and a little hesitant is the bet not sketchy hesitant i guess so it took me a while yeah a couple of weeks i think of conversations before things started going you know what this could be a lot of fun at first it was like hmm wow that's a big move very tentative in the first several conversations but after, you know, a while, it started to go from, hmm, that's a big move to, yeah, but then we could do this. And if we do that, then we can do this. Once you get to that point in your own mind about an idea, whether you know it or not, you're already gone. You're, you're, you're going, you're doing it. When you start having fun coming up with ways to do it, you've emotionally cleared that big hurdle. So Steve had cleared that big hurdle and I think was looking forward to it, but there was still a part of Steve Borden that was still a little analytical. And I think there was a, this is just my impression because we never talked about that. I think he was relieved to a degree, but I also think he was a little disappointed professionally. 
because I think part of him wanted to make a change. Part of him, part of Steve was a little, I don't say tired of the surfer sting character, but he played that character for a long time. When you're a performer and you're playing the same character, doing essentially the same things with essentially the same people week after week after week after week, you know, other than having sometimes a better match with one guy than you had with another, everything's kind of the same. And it gets less challenging. And when it's less challenging, if you're a performer, it gets to be less fun. So I think Sting was looking forward to a change. And that's why part of him was really looking forward to it. But there was still that part of him that was like, no, man, maybe not right yet. So I, I think it was a combination of the two, but probably more disappointment than relief. So then you have him locked. You feel like you got Hulk locked in. Huh. Like, oh, we're getting there. <laughs> and, you, and you have Sting in. And you said, um, and so I'm, when did you feel like then you, based off your response, when did you feel like you had Hulk 100% locked in? About five minutes after it was over. Wow. Yeah. I've I never mean, heard you say this. Yeah. No, well, not, not in that way, but I, I, look, Hulk for a lot of the same reasons that I just talked about with Steve Borden, you know, or Singh, you know, Hulk knew it's the reason he picked up the phone and called me to come to California. Cause he wanted to be the third guy. He, he saw that opportunity. There was a big part of him that wanted to do it. Now in Hulk's case, there was still some hesitancy, you know, and part of it, it's not a big part of it, but the human part of it was, gosh, I got two very young kids that are going to get, they're going to get hit with it. You know, yeah. when, when this hits the fan and in, in Tampa, where everybody knows Hulk Hogan, he grew up there. He became a huge star there. He's the biggest celebrity or was back then. Now Tom Cruise lives right down the street. But at the time, Hulk Hogan was the biggest celebrity, you know, in Tampa or one of them, I guess. And everybody knew him and everybody loved him and his kids and everybody benefited from that connection to the community. And then to turn around and, you know, turn heel especially the way he did um he knew that his kids were going to take some flack for that and as a father you're you if you don't consider that then you're just kind of a yeah. douche you know as a father so um yeah he he was concerned about that he i'm sure was a little concerned about wow you know baby faces get all the commercial endorsements and he was still getting a lot of them at the, even at that time Baby faces get movie opportunities. Baby faces get a lot of fun things. Baby faces sell more merchandise than heels. There's a lot of, you know, business decisions that go into changing a character as well as, you know, the other, the other things. So I think that was part of it with Hulk. And then there was the people around him. And this, you know, I used to tell Hulk, he, says, you know, he and I are still, we're best friends. We talk all the time. And I, I used to say to him, I said, Terry, you're, you're, you're like a big apple tree and you've got these giant apples and you got you underneath this tree. You got a whole bunch of people that, you know, they're there to shake that tree as much as they can to get as many apples to fall off for them as they can, you know, and, and some of those people had good intentions. A lot of them didn't, a lot of them were just selfish. And there were people around Hulk who had his ear yeah. that could create doubt and make him second guess himself, his wife being one of them, major one. 
his ex-wife, Linda. Yeah. Um, he had a manager by the name of Peter, still does, by the name Peter of Peter Young. Young. Great guy. Great guy. He's been Hulk's manager since whenever, back in the 80s. They're very, very close. Peter Young is the type of the guy that is sure the sky is going to fall today. Now, he'll, he, he'll recognize that he said that yesterday, too, and it didn't fall. But today he's convinced the sky is going to fall. <laughs> so and he's in Hulk's. Like, I'm not going to be able to get you any movie deals. And oh, my gosh, well, well, all these opportunities we're going to lose, which meant all the opportunities he's going to lose as a manager. Yeah. Um, so he was in Hulk's ear. Um, and then there was, again, there was the kids and there was, you know, a lot of other people that were shaking that tree, hoping apples would fall, were a little concerned there wouldn't be any more apples. So they were trying to convince him, you know, in their own way to, you know, to rethink what he was doing. And I didn't really know for sure he'd follow through with it until he got to the building around eight or eight 30 that night of the event, the pay-per-view had already started. Oh, yeah. And I planned, I, I didn't want him showing up until after the show started okay. because I didn't want people seeing him backstage. And once the show started, the vast majority of the civilians that hang out backstage are all out watching the show. Yeah. So it was easier for me to sneak him into the building to kind of keep everything secret. So I had him show up about eight 30 or so nine o'clock and he came into the building and I, he was with Kevin Sullivan and a group of others, including Peter Young and a group of other people. And I saw him coming towards me, you know, once he, his limo pulled in the building and I'm going, oh man, I hope he hasn't changed his mind. <laughs> I really hope. I mean, I had plan B. Sting was ready. Yeah. If, if need be, Sting was ready to go. But I it was really hoping. And he finally got close enough to me where I could hear him. And he said, okay, brother, let's do this. And I went, Boom. <laughs> we got him. But even then, you know, uh, I've, I've been around, you know, celebrities and high profile celebrities and they can be unpredictable. So they can be. Um, I was really grateful for five minutes after it happened. That's when I knew it was going to be good. So even so when he's cutting the promo, you're talking about at that point, you were like, okay, now you can, you can exhale. And you can, and you can go sip on Coors Lights, which I did, by the way. But um, afterwards, you know, w- once we got on the plane and we're heading out of there, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a moment. And I went out and watched in the crowd. I snuck up into the cheapest seats that we had available, put my hat down, hung it over my there ain't head. Nothing wrong with that. Threw on a pair of sunglasses and just snuck around and I, wa- <laughs> I, I wanted like to watch it. I wanted to watch it from the perspective of the audience in the building. I didn't want to watch it on a monitor. It's a, it's a pet peeve I have, you know, I see all these people who, you know, in WWE, they have the gorilla position, which looks like the starship fucking enterprise. Sorry. Is this a radio show or is this a podcast? Podcast. You're good. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, good. you go to the gorilla position of WWE and it's, you know, it's a very sophisticated environment. Yeah. You know, very formalized, you know, and in WCW, you had everybody trying to pretend they were, you know, Vince yeah. McMahon or, you know, Gorilla Monsoons, you know, the boss is always on the can staring at the monitor. Well, guess what, folks, you don't feel the show sitting on a monitor with a pair of headsets on the same way that people at home watching in TV feel it. You certainly don't feel it the way people in the arena are feeling it. So you kind of insulate yourself as a producer when you confine yourself to that, you know, 
watching the show on a 12 inch monitor with a pair of cans on. So I, I typically would go out and find a way to sit in the crowd because that's how I judge things. Then, you know, I, I, I watch the crowd, the crowd will tell you what they want. If you listen to them and you pay attention. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, ratings and, you know, analyzing dirt sheet reports and bullshit like that. But I mean, really going out and, and being out there with them, you'll, you'll get a different perspective than you do sitting in a gorilla position. So I went out, you know, I, camouflage myself and went out and watched it like everybody else so had just the biggest grin on my face when i was gonna ask dark. you that what was your uh, reaction when, when I, you I was him? stunned i didn't i didn't expect that i'd never seen it before theory I've, I've heard that it happened in mexico at some point but i never <laughs> i didn't yeah. spend any time in mexico so i don't know if it's true or not I'll, I'll assume that it is but not on this scale not like we did it and i had never seen anything like that before so i was like whoa, this is crazy good. They are really buying into this. And when you have the audience, you know, I'm sure it's the same for, you know, rock bands, any kind of a musical performer, you know, when you have that audience, I know what it feels like to be in the audience when I'm really sucked into a, a concert. You know, I, my wife and I went and saw Santana a couple of years ago in Las Vegas, actually, oh, for my birthday. Man. I mean, I've always loved Santana, but there's a point in, a, in any concert, I think, where you just, you connect with the yeah, performer. Absolutely. And, and you could feel that, you could feel that connection. I had never experienced it before. So it was very, it was very much a stark contrast to anything I had experienced. Is that your proudest moment in wrestling? I think it's the biggest moment. I don't know if it's the proudest moment or not. I think creating the Nitro format, you know, is probably something as a producer I'm more proud of okay. because that format is what still exists today. A two-hour live, well, now it's a three-hour live show on Mondays, but it's a two-hour live format. Yeah. Introducing the, the kind of backstage segments that we did, opening up the arena so that action happened in and around the arena as well as in the ring. It expanded our ability to tell stories in a much different way that had never been done before in many respects. Um, I don't think you'd ever seen action go from the ring into the production truck while the show is being produced before. You know, that's a little bit like two people getting an argument back in 31B and 31A uh, on a flight and it ending up in the cockpit. You don't ever see that. You didn't see that in wrestling, but you no, saw it the first time on Nitro. And a, a lot of those types of storytelling elements and devices were created for the Nitro format and they're still being used today. Hey, I got Conrad blowing up my phone. Hang around real quick. Hey, buddy. Promise to be quick at a super duper cafe, but well, hold, hold, hold it, you're hold it, you're on the air right now. Can I call you back in a minute? I'm I'm on the air. I, I'm get, to I get to delete this part, Eric. It's not a big deal. If you need to talk, that's all right. That's all right. You know, you Go. look at like you said. You know that you've had bigger moments, and something I don't think you've maybe you've answered this before, and I'm not sure. If it wasn't going to be Hulk, and Sting said no. Mm. Was there a plan C or was it just those were the, the two options? And that no, was I probably should have had a plan C in retrospect, but I didn't. 
you know, plan A was Sting and he was bought in. I, you know, the other thing I knew about Sting was that once I got him committed, he wouldn't, he wouldn't change his mind. You know, he's very predictable in that. So it's sometimes it was hard to get him to commit to something because he was analytical in the way he processed it. But once he committed, I, I, I would go to the bank with it. I would bet everything I own on it. Um, so I wasn't worried about Sting changing his mind. But um, had, had I not been able to talk Sting into it, I probably would have figured out a solution had Hogan not picked up the phone and called me. I don't know what it would have been. Um, you know, seems like Ric Flair would have been a good choice. Not sure Rick would. Well, though, I think Rick would have been much more um, comfortable with being a heel than Hulk yeah. Sting because Rick loves being a heel. Oh, yeah. So we're not, so no Mabel. Ha ha to people. No, no, no. no uh, we got a, I had the ha ha that once. I've never said that to you. And I, I actually thought that was kind of funny. It's a, I, it's a good running joke. <laughs> I thought an all-star of the night that no one talks about. I don't feel like talks about enough is Tony Schiavone. And I remember when I talked to Tony before you guys did a show here in Chicago. And I, we were talking about, his final line of Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. And he's like, I thought just thought of that on the fly. I was like, I know we were just about to go. We were going to, that was going to be the final moment. And that's when he said it. Why do why do you think Tony doesn't get enough credit? Cause he guided that ship the entire night. Tony handled that perfectly to, he did. There was no screw up. There was nothing to hint at who it would be. Because he, he didn't know for sure. So because nobody knew anything. But which doesn't answer your question. I, I think oh, the no, reason no. that, you know, announcers, you're, to me, a great announcer is like a really good journalist. They're not a part of the story. Yeah. You know, a, a really good journalist is able to present detail both sides of an issue or three sides of an issue if there are and and do it in a way that you know makes you interested it makes you want to learn more and compels you to do some research of your own and they don't become the story and today you know and i think today's social media environment reporters and people that cover sports and news and everything else they're desperately trying to be a story they're desperate, desperate. And, and I think with, with professional wrestling, that was true too. The way I was trained to be a play-by-play announcer, I was trained by Vern Gagne, who was one of the most kayfabe, traditional, stubborn, never going to change your mind kind of guys ever. Um, he wouldn't smarten me up. I was doing play-by-play. I had no idea who was going to win what. I may have had my suspicions, but yeah. I may have also been wrong, so I never let them show. And I think because that's the way I was trained, that's the way I prepared or didn't prepare the announcers for this event. They didn't know. No, they oh, wow. may have had their suspicions, but since I didn't know for sure until <laughs> Hulk Hogan actually showed up in the building, I guarantee you nobody knew other than the people that needed to know. And Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan weren't those people. I purposefully kept them in the dark and didn't tell them anything. And Tony's enough of a pro, and Tony and I were very close friends at that time, and still are. Tony was enough of a pro to understand why I wanted it that way. So Tony wasn't pressed, or he wasn't pissy about it. Yeah. He, he wanted to deliver what I was hoping to achieve, which is the element of, 
of, of, of genuine shock and surprise. That was my goal for that turn. And no matter how good of a play-by-play announcer you are or color commentator, if you gotta know what's going on in the back of your mind, consciously or subconsciously, it's going to shape the way you deliver your material. I, I've done it, I know. Yeah. And I think by keeping Tony and Bobby in the dark, although it did cause some rough spots, um, Tony being the pro that Tony is, just went with his gut and his heart. And he was just like every fan watching, which is exactly what you hope for when you're doing play-by-play. You know, you have the best seat in the in the house yeah. as a play-by-play announcer calling wrestling. And if you could still maintain the part of you that's a fan, a genuine fan, not a smart fan that reads dirt sheets, but a fan that's just there for the love of it, and you can communicate that emotion, you own it. You own every single person that's listening to you. And that's what Tony did. Now, the flip side in terms of why didn't he get the credit he deserved? Because I don't think people realize how good of a job Tony really did because it was real to him. This is real as it could have possibly been to him. I had more of an appreciation for that. For I always had a lot of appreciation for Tony, but I had more than I, than I did going in before I watched that show last night and this morning, just because like you said, like you said, he didn't know. So it's like, he's just telling a story of, then he's talking about you and the storyline of you not being in the building and maybe they had you hostage and just the way he wove everything in and made it 100% as real as it can get really added another layer to the show. It did. And what you just touched on is really interesting. And it was kind of the underlying thread, another one of the underlying threads that really made NWO work. I mean, the whole essence from day one, when Scott Hall came down, well, next week I'm bringing my big buddy. Who's that? It's a mystery, right? Get people talking. Who is it? Who could it be? Could it be Sid? Could it be this guy? Could it be that guy? Who is it? When you can get people asking those questions, you know, I guess they used to call it water cooler buzz, right? Yeah. You get people talking about something because they don't have the information. It's not a declarative statement. Next week, Kevin Nash makes an appearance. We didn't want to do that. That's the way wrestling had always been done. And by the way, unfortunately, it's the way it's still being done today. Everybody's reverted back to the over-promotion, you know, Next week, it's going to be this match and this match. And then next week, these two are going to wrestle. The week that and that, it's like, fuck, I don't care. Give me something spontaneous. Give me something that feels like it's happened spontaneity in a spot, spontaneity, spontaneous way. I used to call it spontaneous combustion. Give me that. Because that, that translates to the audience or creates in the audience a sense of, well, I got to watch it. Cause if I don't watch it, I'm going to miss something. Cause they don't tell me what they're going to do. And it's really good. Usually and no, I better watch it. I better not skip it. Cause I don't want to be the dummy that skipped it. That's how you create must see television is by in wrestling, by doing things that people don't expect that feel spontaneous. Even if they're not, you make them feel that way. That's the magic that makes it work. But the magic in the NWO, starting with Kevin Nash, starting with Scott Hall, teasing Kevin Nash. And then it's going to be, who's the third man. It's a mystery. It's not just action. It's a mystery. It's not just good guy, bad guy. It's not good by good guy, bad guy. 
mystery theater. Wow, another layer of entertainment just kind of on top of everything. And then add the layer of surprise when it's, you know, Hulk Hogan. Wow, another layer. It's, it's kind of like how entertainment should be. And, and I, I think, you know, Tony even asking the question, you know, where the hell is Eric Bischoff? Why isn't he here? And speculating about that, just another little kernel of, of mystery that fed into the whole mystery theater of the, who's the third man. So it's just, it was so good. You hit me. I thought something was legit wrong with you. <laughs> you had me. I, you had 15-year-old me wondering, man, I wonder what they – I wonder what happened to Eric. Maybe they got well, him. Well, and, and, and 15-year-old you would have probably come to that conclusion because of what you saw happen in Baltimore. Yeah, exactly. Like if they did that, what won't they do? Holy cow, all the rules have changed. Going back to breaking the paradigm and just burning everything down, starting from scratch. I gave you a reason. We gave you a reason to actually believe that something had actually happened to me because of what you saw happen to me the week before. It all worked. You know what drives me crazy, bro? Is none of this stuff is that hard. This is not. No. This is not gone with the wind here. No, this isn't Shakespeare. This is really kind of simple stuff. And it's doable. It's different today because of social media. And people have become more um, hardened today. But it's all still doable. These are basic storytelling techniques that could be used today. Differently, of course. But. Surprises me. Everybody's just kind of doing the same thing. They're different, doing slightly different versions of the same thing, very slightly different versions. And I think what we're seeing in terms of audience and the popularity of professional wrestling as a whole in 2021 compared to 1996 is a result of just lack of depth of storytelling. You let me in because I had two more questions, and that was kind of something along the line I was going to go. Because you look at what we saw in July of 96. You think about, I think it was two weeks before that, Steve Austin cut his promo. Then we get the NWO. And then really, after that, what, and this isn't, we really haven't had that big, like you said, water cooler moment in pro wrestling. Why is it, at least to me, why is the formation of the NWO 25 years ago the last really big monumental thing that has happened in wrestling? I think because the real competition, and when I say that, I mean head-to-head, you know, Mondays were Raw's territory. They, they were jury, Monday night, or Monday night, wrestling on television was Jerry Jarrett's Memphis territory. And we came in to, came in to take it. We wanted that territory. That was a real war. When Nitro went head to head with WWE, that was in the eyes of the audience. And for the rest of us who were behind the scenes, it was a real battle. I wanted to take their audience as much of it as I could get. And that permeated through the television they knew this was a real fight well what is wrestling good guy bad guy you have your favorite over here you have your favorite over here and you watch them go at it that's what we were doing but in a bigger way and it, it, it was like the coke 
Pepsi Wars, right? It was Domino's and Pizza Hut back in the 60s. You know, it was Hershey's and Mars back in the 30s. You know, it was Ford and, and, and Chrysler, you know, back in the early, late 30s. You know, it was that war creates interest. And that interest creates chatter and buzz. And the chatter and buzz creates a bigger audience. Because, well, what am I missing here? I got to go check this out. And I think the reason the NWO is today what it is, it's still very successful financially, believe it or not, 25 years later, the NWO merchandise catalog is one of the more, or NWO merchandise in the WWE catalog is one of the most successful catalog items they have to this day. And the reason for that is I think wrestling audiences know that that was, they may not process it this way, but I, I think they feel like, wow, that was, that was the best time in wrestling. That was the best time to be a fan because of the, the war, because it was a real war. It wasn't a cosplay war. It was the real shit. And people reacted accordingly and it created a buzz. I know you've answered this before, but based off of what you just said there, can that magic, we'll go with that word, can the magic of that ever be recaptured? Because I don't think so. And I hate saying that, but just every fiber in me says, yeah. But when I sit and actually take some time and think about it, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't really don't think so. Could it happen again? Absolutely. Will it happen again? Absolutely not. Because your next question was going to be, why would you say that? Actually, no. (laughs) I, it's, it's just, I know it you were going to keep going. Yeah, it, <laughs> it won't happen again because I'm only hesitating because I want to try to say this in a way that's honest and, and accurate, but not mean-spirited. The environment that we all live in today in business, any kind of business, is much more of a, a risk-adverse environment television in particular, I think has suffered more than anybody. There's not a television executive that I know of that would have the balls to do what Ted Turner did when Ted looked at me and said, take Monday night primetime on TNT. Go head-to-head with Vince McMahon. Ted, that wasn't my idea. I was, on the, I was on the receiving end of that idea. I was just in the room, and I had to figure out how to do it. I'll take the credit for figuring out how to do it, but the idea that I, I can't take credit for making that decision to go head to head. That was all Ted Turner. Nobody's got the balls of a Ted Turner anymore in, in, in television. Nobody. And the executives that are down below a Ted Turner type level do not have the balls to do it because it's too big a risk. And people in television are the most risk adverse people you will ever meet in your life there there is a cover your ass protocol in the world of television today that didn't exist back then in the 90s not just in wrestling but across the board so could it happen yes if somebody had the guts and the patience and the talent 
to go, you know what? We're going to go head-to-head with Monday Night Raw or head-to-head with Friday Night SmackDown. We're going to do it. Then it could happen because it's not that hard. People will react to it, and you can build on it if you have the patience. That's another thing that's missing today. Everybody wants something to succeed within the first 90 days. Good luck with that. But I think it could happen, but it won't because people just don't have the confidence in themselves or the confidence of the people that they report to. You've been to AEW shows you've been on TV. Is that a conversation you've ever had with Tony Khan? No. no. Tony's, I think Tony has a real <clears throat> clear vision of what he wants to do and what his goals are. So all my conversations with Tony have always been extraordinarily pleasant. But he's not taking any—he's uh, not taking any advice from Eric Bischoff. Let's put it that way. Would you just give it unsolicited? No, he can listen to the show if he wants. All he's got to do is tune into the podcast, and he can hear anything I want to. He'll hear—he'll hear anything and everything I think, whether he likes it or not. But no, I look. Here's the other side of it. I've been out of the business now for a long time. I still have a pretty good feel for television. I'm still involved in the entertainment business. I'm producing a movie for Netflix right now. I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm sitting at home, you know, yeah. chasing kids off my property, you know, throwing beer cans at the neighbors, you know, but, um, you know, I'm out of it. And I think my advice, while probably valuable in some cases, is not for a lot of people right now. Because it's a different world that I existed in. And I'm first one to recognize that. And I'm grateful I'm not in it. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be trying to produce wrestling in today's environment. You not only are, you, you not only have to worry about offending the network you're on <clears throat> and the advertisers that support them, therefore you, um, you've got, you know, you make one wrong move and it gets misinterpreted or somehow offends the social media. <clears throat> consciousness you're going to get me too right off the air yeah. the creative <laughs> lane is so <clears throat> the creative lane is so narrow right now yeah but there's just not a lot of room to maneuver and you just got to go in a straight line keep pace with the traffic don't veer off too much to the right or left or you're going to hit a guardrail that could cause you to wreck no thanks man that would not be any fun We'll end with this. Huh? We'll end, I, we'll end with this. All right. What should be the legacy and what will the, the defining legacy be of the NWO? I, I think innovation, you know, in one word. You know, it, it, it was the first time that so it was the first time for so many things all wrapped under one story. You know, it was the first time that the anti-heroes became a prevalent part of a storyline. The first time there was an anti-hero in wrestling. Everything was always cut and dry, baby face or heel. There was never, you know, that, you know, yeah, they were doing heel-like stuff, but, man, kind of cool. Yeah. It never happened before. Just everything we did was the first time that it had ever been done so often. So I think just to wrap, just if you had to put one word on it, innovation. You are not wrong with that. The 25-year anniversary today, July 7th, 2021. I remember sitting there 
I ordered, I paid my $29.95, Eric Bischoff. It went, $15 of that went to you and the WCW for fashion. No, it didn't go to me, brother. You wouldn't be talking to me right now. I'd be on a beach throwing coconuts <laughs> at people that are going by. Well, it went to WCW, went to Turner. There you go. Went to Turner. And went to Ted Turner, and you got a whole lot of credit, which was rightfully deserved. There you go. I appreciate I appreciate I appreciate your $29.95 or my, my or WCW's portion thereof. 1996 from Daytona Beach. The NWO was created. The brainchild behind it, the great Eric Bischoff. Eric, we've chatted a lot of times in the past, but this was my favorite conversation because it wasn't all about everything going on in wrestling. It was focused on a grand event that happened 25 years ago. Thank you for the time, Eric. I know your time is precious. I thank you so much. And I look, what is the topic next week on 83 weeks? I don't know. I think that's what Conrad was just calling me about. <laughs> He's going to be mad at me. He's gonna no, me. no, no, no. He's going to be like, Steve, what are you doing? I'm trying to get podcasts ready. But Eric, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And look forward to the conversation again real soon. All right, buddy. Be well. Thank you very much. All right, you, Eric. Thank you, buddy. See ya. A big, 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 big thank you to Eric Bischoff can follow Eric on Twitter at ebischoff. Follow the podcast, 83 Weeks at 83 Weeks. And you can follow Conrad Thompson at Hey, Hey, It's Conrad. He said it all there. There was no plan C. What if Sting and Brett, what if Sting said no? And what if Hulk Hogan had said no? I just find that so, I found it so fascinating. Because maybe they're wanting to bet an NWO. He knew he couldn't just run with Hall and Nash. My goodness. Just so like, it's boggled my mind. I was so like, I wasn't, like I'm so, I was still doing the interview, but like in the back of my mind, I was like, ah, jeez, good gosh. But no, it was very, very awesome to talk to Eric Bischoff. It really meant a lot for him to give me that much time, especially on a day like that. And I know he was doing interviews all over the place, but I also have a good relationship with Eric. So I, that really meant a lot. Thank you to my man, Derek at CM communications. Thank him so much for helping set that up. I was really wanting that interview. So definitely, definitely please listen to that. It would mean a ton. Listen to this. Eric was awesome. A good hour. If you guys are going to work, doing some chores around the house or outside the house, give it a going for doing some exercise outside. Give this a whirl. It was a very, very insightful conversation. But this week, a lot of cool stuff coming up. And I'm going to start with this one because I know it's going to create a lot of controversy. Alberto L. Patron. Now, I'm going to warn everybody. This podcast was interesting. Um, Alberto is wrestling on Saturday, this coming Saturday, in Hidalgo, Texas, against Andrade and Carlito. We talk about what this year was like for him in the last year or so plus. It's been it's been a very interesting year for Alberto Del Rio in the last twelve months. A lot of not a lot of good for the former WWE champion. And doesn't sound good. He's only accused. It's only accusations. It doesn't sound great though. So I gave Alberto the platform, made him my own decision. I was going to run an article, but <laughs> I really only got three questions in. 
maybe four. And Alberto just went on a rant for the ages. So I wasn't going to run it, but I'm going to run it. Because I feel like I owe that to you guys. He did take the time out to talk. And I do respect that. I don't know what he did. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. And the accusations make him to be a complete dirtbag. Is he a dirtbag? I don't know. I really don't know. My interactions with him in the past have been just fine. I've had insightful conversations with him. I don't know what's went on outside of our conversations. I don't know. He could be the world's biggest con man, and we've got to remember this is the pro wrestling business. A lot of them are con men. But we'll see. But I do want to let you get that interview will be for Wednesday. Then a pretty cool interview for Thursday. The one and only A.J. McKee. He headlines this Saturday night's Bellator 263. A great way to end the month of July. From the Forum in Inglewood, California. You can catch that live and only on Showtime. A great chat with AJ last week. We talked about everything under the sun. It was great. It was fantastic to get to reconnect with AJ McKee. It's been a while to talk about the title fight, what it means to him to face Patricio Pitbull. Is the winner the top pound-for-pound fighter in Bellator and a whole lot more? Don't forget, guys. Subscribe to the Walkway to Fight Club. Just type in Walkway to Fight Club. We're on every podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. You can do that. Also, we're on, God, I don't even know, iHeart, Radio.com, Odyssey. You name it, we're there. So make sure, make sure you guys do that. Rate. Give, rate it five stars. It really does help a lot in the podcast rankings and also leave a nice and kind review. I will talk to you guys Wednesday with Alberto El Patron. This is Steven Milhausen, and I'll talk to you guys later. Peace. I'm out of here.